Reconciliation is a big word, and we need to talk about it more than once or twice a year. And we need to talk about it as something that's a serious word from the Word of God. So it's a good time for us to be focusing on the word reconciliation. Welcome to the Big Words series. If you haven't been here for a couple of Sundays, if you're just joining us online, welcome. We are in week three of the series. We've looked at a couple of other big words. Today we are on to reconciliation, and we are focused on different passages from the book of Ephesians. We're working our way through passage by passage. Today we come to Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. I want to give you that heads up, so if you want to grab your Bible or use a pew Bible or find it in your phone, I know many of you use a phone Bible, that's fine. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We're going to just kind of read through the whole passage here in just a moment. It is one of the truly thought-provoking, image-laden passages of the New Testament. And so, if you are not familiar with this passage, I pray that you will hear it, let it soak in. If you've read it many, many times, hear it afresh. If you need to, close your eyes and listen to it being read, or if you do better by, as I'm reading, kind of moving your lips and reading it right off the screen out of your Bible, uh, that's fine. Whatever helps you to engage with the Word of God. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in here on Sundays, but there's only one thing in specific that the Bible says will never return void, and that is the Word of God itself. So that's why we always take time to read it every week, multiple passages to steer you toward His Word. So if you'll follow along, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and that includes pretty much everybody in this room, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that which is done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace." And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, God, for that work which is ongoing. A big word, reconciliation. It has a big role to play in our church and in our world if we are truly ever going to be the people of God. And I was giving some thought to this, folks. I think in a best-case scenario of how the world sees us, I'm pretty well convinced that the scarcity of truly multi-ethnic churches contributes significantly to the world's perception that the church doesn't have much to say. And that's in a best-case scenario. In a worst-case scenario, one could make the argument that the inability to tear down walls and truly experience unity as God's people is in fact a tragic fulfillment of the Bible's warning found in 2 Timothy 3, 5, which talks about a religion that has the appearance of godliness but lacks the power thereof. Wow, you get what that's talking about, right? Just talking about God, talking about religion. It's a form of godliness, but there's no real power there. Where God is, there is power. Even to break down the wall of hostility, even to bring reconciliation. And it's interesting, I, I don't have I got to tell you, if you want to, you could go home today. Those of you who are such computer experts, you can Google the conversation about multi-ethnic churches. And it's, it's a fascinating debate that to, for I look at it, I'm, at times I'm absolutely blown away by the things people are saying. There are churches that do this way better than we do, and there are churches that still don't even think you ought to try, which blows my mind completely. What is the role of the multi-ethnic church? What is God trying to do? And one of the things that, that I find joyful about the multi-ethnic church is that to me, it is another signal of a return to the biblical church, to the first century church, where because Paul was doing these missionary journeys, because churches were being planted as they traveled and shared the gospel, it was almost always a seaport city, right? It was a a commercial headquarters, right, whether it was Ephesus or Corinth or Rome, that there was stuff happening. People from all different cultures were mingling together, much like the increasing citification of our world today, where urbanization, as people tend to, to, to gather and grow and grow, and that's where multi-ethnic flavors are concentrated. I in their day, it was one of the results of the Roman conquering of the world, right? There began to be a common language, the, the Roman Pax, the peace that they brought in their military domination enabled for worldwide trade and the exchange and a currency and all those kinds of things. All those things are present in our world today. And here's the deal. What is our role to be? You see, I, I think that the Bible teaches us that one of the reasons the church of Jesus Christ exists, exists on this earth is to take the culture, the customs, and the practices, not of America, not of the American church, but of heaven. The culture, the practices, 
the customs of heaven, that faraway land, and bring that to this place called earth so that our communities start to look like little pieces of heaven, however imperfect they may be. Rick Warren always talks about the fact that everything we do on earth is just practice to get to heaven. It's just practice for living together as God's people there. And I think it's our job, especially as members of this congregation, to take that heavenly reality and put it into place here as much as we can. Remember when the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, and you got to remember, John was old. He's in his 90s. He could have let his own personal prejudices overwhelm what God wanted to do. John was a simple Galilean fisherman. I'm sure like most of us, there have been times he thought, I'd like to go back to when it was a simpler day instead of when I'm held basically imprisoned on the island of Patmos. But that's where he was and somewhere around 90 years old writing the book of Revelation. And as a part of that, declaring God's vision that God gave him, here's what he said in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. I looked, he saw into heaven, and what did he see? There were before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the vision of heaven. And if everything we are about is being God's people and moving toward this eventuality, when's a good time to start getting ready for that? Yesterday, today, every day that God gives us breath. You see, when John looked into heaven, he did not see a homogeneous gathering of folks. When he got his glimpse, it wasn't limited to just one type of people, not just one ethnicity or one language or one gender or one age group or one set of cultural norms or beliefs or habits. When John looked, he saw blacks and whites and Asians and Latinos, a multi-ethnic community being shaped and formed before the people of God, before the, the, the Lamb of God. And you may remember that the Lamb himself, Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry and delivered that very famous sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, here's what he said in Matthew 6. You've heard this a few times because if you're one of those folks who likes to pray the Lord's Prayer, you've recited this verse. And so, see, here's the question, are we living the verse? Because here's what Jesus said. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Oh, no, it's too hard down here. Let's wait and just do it in heaven. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you're going to pray something, pray this and do this. That's how important it was. He could have listed a lot of stuff. There's a lot of religious stuff he didn't mention in the Lord's Prayer. But getting along with each other, reconciling with one another, that made it on the front end. In other words, if we see this, we know this is true in heaven, we should try to mimic it and translate it into life on earth. So this scripture reading that we've had today from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, 
addresses this issue of ethnicity and race as a part of the discussion on unity. And I just want to say throughout the remainder of this sermon when I talk about reconciliation and I'm using race as a framework for talking about it, but in our culture we know that it's everything from language to socioeconomics to all kinds of things that divide us. God is calling us to be reconciled. Now, let me just say this, if you're feeling a little nervous, uh, my intention in this sermon today is not to try to pass along guilt to anybody. Uh, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about it, because here's the problem. Guilt never changed the fundamental nature of a heart. God does that, and you know how He does it? Not with guilt, with love. <laughs> it's completely opposite approach. I do believe if we want to live fully into the hope that God gives, if we don't want to be without hope, without God in the world, if we want to know what it is to break down the dividing walls, we have to grasp more profoundly this picture of our future eternal reality and what the Bible is saying about making that real here. This one new man, or actually better translated, a new humanity That's really what it's about, how we relate to one another. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians 2. He says, Jesus came to create this one new humanity, the people of God. And in the midst of our wonderful diversity, we need to be celebrating not just the diversity itself, because here's what we know about diversity. We talked about it at our D.C. convention this week. We talk about it in small groups. We talk about it in staff meetings. Diversity is at one and the same time for our church, for this community, for our convention, for many settings in America. It is our greatest strength and our greatest challenge at the same time. And so learning to live with diversity by having harmony and respect and togetherness instead of conflict, instead of judgmentalism, instead of separation, We have togetherness. That's what the Bible is talking about. That's what Jesus came to do, and that's what we're learning as we look at this word reconciliation. Because here's the fact of the matter, folks. What we see in heaven revealed in the book of Revelation is not going to come to earth by magic. It doesn't come with just hosting an event, you know, When I was joking earlier, I said, no, it's not Black History Month, it's not 7th of September, it's not Cinco de Mayo, it's not any of those days. it's, It's not multicultural day. One day doesn't get it done. It's every day. It's every day as the people of God. And events, I... When back in the day when Promise Keepers was a big thing, it, it actually helped to bring along a lot of reconciliation. There were a, a, a lot of things that I saw personally, people repent of racism and separation, and I saw great stuff. But events don't solve it. It is a determination to live into the reality to which God has called us, the reality of reconciliation. It is intentional. It is relational. It is sharing, not only amongst the people of our our community and the guests who join us, and by the way, thank you, I, I couldn't be more grateful that God has put us in a place, in a location, in a, a, a web presence, uh, in a community where we have the opportunity for all kinds of people to gather. And, and we're so blessed to have guests on a regular basis. We want you to understand you are welcome here. This is about God bringing together all kinds of different people. 
And so when I say it's intentional, let me say that doesn't mean that every week our conversation has to be about race. That's, that begins to be a little forced, doesn't it? That, that's not the thing, right? But I'm also saying you have to take intentional steps. It doesn't happen by magic either. Some, some of you come in here every week and you are so wonderful about it, but you sit right down the pew from somebody who's quite different from you. And you've been doing that for several years now, and you have never once, never once taken those people out to lunch or said, hey, can you got a few minutes? Let's at least go out and get some coffee and talk. I, I see that you sit right down the pew from me every week, and I've not taken the time to get to know you. And part of the reason we don't, can we be honest, is that, well, they look really different from me. And, and, and now, I'm going to give you some credit, because I want to applaud some folks. Some of you guys are amazing and how you are constantly tearing down walls and building bridges to try to cross all kinds of cultural things. But I want to be like Paul, who said in many of his letters, I want to encourage you to excel even more in what you are doing. And, and it's not going to happen by accident. It's intentional decision-making. And, and I, I think we get farther when we speak honestly. I think there are some of us in the room thinking, I am, I'm so happy to be a part of a church like this, and I'm glad we have some people here who are really, really good at authentic, multi-ethnic relationships. That's just not me. You plan on getting a private room in heaven? You know, we have to practice. We got to practice, folks. It's okay. Now, when you practice, anybody ever been to a, a, a sports practice? baseball practice, football practice, basketball. What happens in those practices? Lots of mistakes. Lots of mistakes. You got to extend a lot of grace before you learn to hit the layup. But folks, we're making some of this harder than we need. We're trying half court shots. Just take the layup. You don't have to go to, I'm not asking you to go down the street, find the, you know, the person who looks most different from you and try to build. I'm saying start with somebody in here. Might be a guest, might be a long-term member, but, but start. Be intentional about it. I'm not asking you to solve the problems of the world. I'm asking you to take a moment or two today, especially, and ask God to speak to you about reconciliation. What's your part? Challenge yourself to act. Now, don't wait for me to do it. Challenge yourself. How are you going to act intentionally and tear down a wall by listening to people who are different from you? Sharing a meal with someone who is different from you, a cup of coffee, to serve beside them, whether it's in the nursery or maybe you're out here working in some of the, one of the other places, and then you say, you know what, let's pick this up again after service. Let's, 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 let's grab a quick bite or something together. It's, it's just, it's that simple. So with that in mind, I want us to look at Ephesians 2 and just pull out a couple of key principles to guide us. Found in the gospel of Christ, found in this declaration from Paul, his challenge saying, look, when the gospel changes you, Jesus is about making us all one. He's not making us all identical, but he's bringing us together to be one together. Let's look at the solution. So let's look at the solution by starting with the problem. So if you're a note taker, this is on the back of your, of your bulletin program. If you want to jot something down, here's our problem. The problem is that there is a dividing wall. There's a dividing wall. And there are things that separate us. You can imagine. He's writing, of course, in particular to Jews and Gentiles. You understand there was religious prejudice. Shoot, the, the Jews didn't even like the Samaritans, and they were basically Jews. They were just northern and southern. Oh, that never happens today. 
I tell you, when we go to, you know, y'all know I am a Southerner. When you go home to Virginia, I go back and visit Texas, go down to Confederate flags, the South shall rise again. What the heck is that about? We're still doing that? And that's how the Samaritans and the Jews were. Centuries of judging one another, of focusing on what made them different instead of what God was trying to do in bringing them together. Arguing over, I know this is shocking, over how to worship. (laughs) Which songs you were going to use. You know, what city you were going to do it in. This is the conversations the Gentiles, the Jews and the Samaritans had. And then the Jews and the Gentiles, I mean, holy cow, that's a whole nother gap, right? Matter of fact, let's focus on the Scripture here a little bit. In verse 14, Paul says that when Christ died, he dismantled the dividing wall of hostility. You know he wasn't just speaking figuratively, right? I mean, if if you've grown up at all in church and Sunday school classes and that kind of thing, one of the conversations you know is that inside the temple, there were several dividing walls to keep the groups separate. There were actually four different courts inside the walls of the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles. There was the court of women, right? Because, oh, got to keep them separate. The court of the Israelites and the court of the priests. And so the court of the Gentiles was the only place that Gentiles were welcome. And it's interesting, this is where history will help you. In 1871, archaeologists actually found part of the dividing wall that had separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. And on this particular wall, it had these words, do not proceed any further under threat of death. Well, that's a welcoming sign in church, isn't it? Wow. Wow. Maybe we ought to hang a few of those on the doors out front, right? No, no, no. See, the Gentiles were being informed. Now, see if this rings a bell for anybody in the room. We just want to make sure you know where your place is. Wow. Does that still happen today? Oh, yeah. There's a certain place for women. There's a certain place for people. There's a, oh, my goodness. You see, this is what we call another big word. Fortunately, it's not a biblical word, but the word segregation. The folks were segregated. And that's what Paul is trying to address in the Scriptures here when he says, those of you who were far off, you were held out there at the first wall. You barely got in the door. And he said, that's where it was for you. But Jesus has addressed that. Jesus has torn down that wall. They were segregated from the Jewish brothers and sisters in the worship of God. And thanks be to God, Paul says that when Jesus came, he dismantled that wall so that Jew and Gentile, male and female, could come together as one people and worship together. Oh, that's so great. 2,000 years ago, Jesus did that. But sadly, it appears that we are still working to resurrect the dividing wall of hostility in far too many places. What Christ had dismantled, we work, it seems like, almost intentionally to rebuild in some places. Because I have to tell you that as I read history, it may be the biggest error, the greatest tragedy in American church history is that same great deep stain that is on our country's history, is that we work to resurrect this wall based on skin color that Christ was tearing down. 
You see, you know how history, is, is they say, is written by the victors. You, you only write down the part you want to have remembered. So here's a part that'll break your heart a little bit. In 1787, there was a black man who was worshiping in a church. Of course, the church was a white church. They were the ones who had the money to build churches and all that kind of thing. And this man had the audacity to go into the church and to go down and kneel and pray. And the folks were so appalled at what he was doing, they didn't even wait for the man to finish praying. They picked him up off his knees. They threw him out the door. Other African-Americans, even who were just there watching in the back where they were permitted, where the dividing wall was, right, with balcony or in the very back or off to, they were aghast. They decided to go next door to a vacant local blacksmith shop. They bought it. They started to build their own church, and that was the founding of this little group we call the African Methodist Episcopal Church. You ever seen an AME church? That's how it got started. Oh, no, it was not. We love our brothers and sisters. Let's help them build a church where they can identify together. It was, we're going to throw you out the door. This is a part of our church history. We have to look that in the, and understand that that was a dividing wall that doesn't make God happy. It, it is not the right thing to do. And that began a whole denomination and began in some ways what is that ongoing tragic trajectory of our nation where you get every church splitting for denomination, splitting for color, splitting for this, instead of finding unity. We resurrect the walls of hostility. It was, of course, the very famous Baptist, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who in very melancholy terms, he was not celebrating the fact, he surveyed the landscape of our country and made that very famous statement, often quoted, the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour of the week. Since he made that observation, while there are exceptions to that rule, it is tragically still quite true. I suppose it's not entirely surprising. I mean, human beings are particularly good at building walls. Isn't it interesting that the only thing you can actually see that's man-made from the moon when you look back at the earth is a wall, the Great Wall of China. If all of ours were that obvious, perhaps we would address them better. Most of our walls are far more subtle. They're racial, they're sociopolitical, they're economic. And again, you you can't get any better, folks, until you own your stuff, okay? So can we just admit that too often the churches have been a part of the rebuilding of those walls of division than of the healing part? There are some amazingly inspiring stories from the other side, right? I mean, when Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer opposed Hitler in Germany. You know, well, that, that, that's a great story of tearing down walls, not accepting the Nazi philosophy. Desmond Tutu in South Africa, instead of giving up, instead of saying, let me stay in my place, he worked to tear down the walls of hostility, leading a divided nation back toward unity. Billy Graham, even. I'm going to give the man credit. There was a, and some of you know the story, right? There was one of his rallies years ago, decades ago in Atlanta, where he personally went and removed the cords they had strung up to separate the black audience from the white audience down in Georgia. 
There are some great stories in the history of the church in America. There just aren't enough of them. (laughs) There need to be more. Can I invite you pathways? Can we be part of the good side of the story? This, This is our calling. We sometimes, we oftentimes actually refer to ourselves as a multicultural church. It's the first thing we say about ourselves in almost every conversation on our website. Sociologists actually have a definition for it. They say that a multicultural church, they made it as simple as you could get it. They said if no one ethnic group makes up more than 80% of the attendance, we can classify you as a multicultural church. Now, those of us who are in multicultural churches, we have a lot more things that we add on that, right? It's about seeing people in the leadership. It's about seeing the people given the authority to preach the Word of God, to sing and teach and lead worship of the people of God, to serve and be recognized in every area uh, of service. That, that's what it's about. But, but even that basic one, if we just go with a bar that's so low, just if, if there's nobody that makes up more than 80%, you know how many churches in America there are like that? I shouldn't say churches. Let me say houses of worship, because when they did the study initially, they included all the, the, the Jewish and the Muslim and the others. You know what the percentage is that's multicultural? In America, land of the free, home of the brave, multicultural place of the world, right? 7.5%. 7.5%. Wow, that's not so good. <laughs> Hold on to your hat, it gets worse. Because when you take out the synagogues and you take out the mosques and you take out all that, in the Christian church in America, it falls to 2.5%. Now, that's about a five-year-old stat. These stats are not easy to get, right? So they're not all taken yesterday, and I understand that we're on a, I could say we're on an upward trajectory, but it'd have to be like this, <laughs> a, real, a really low-pitched trajectory if it's on a trajectory upward. And, and can I just say here, I understand we have a, a, a congregation down the hall that is primarily Brazilian. We have a congregation down the hall that is pr- Spanish-speaking from a number of countries. We're not saying we have, we have some wonderful partners down in D.C. that are all black church. We understand that there are places where the neighborhood, the opportunity to speak a language, there is a time and a place. We, we can understand and acknowledge all of that. But you know where is not the time and the place for that? Well, when John looked into heaven, he said, there ain't none of that here. It's Everybody. Can I just ask and encourage, and as long as I'm here, this will, be my, this will be my song. If we can't do it here, there's not much point in being here. I, uh, the people of God are all kinds of people. And, and it does not bring me any joy to go riding around and saying, well, oh, there's the black church over there, and there's the, this church over there, and there's the white church. No, that, that's not what God is after. Paul says, Jesus Christ died to dismantle the dividing wall of hostility, in verse 15, so that he could create one new people. So, I guess if I was Jesus today, I could say it this way, are you for me or are you again me? You know, this is what Jesus is about doing. The dream. So, let's talk about the dream for a minute. We'll use the beautiful language. What's the dream? The dream for Jesus was one new humanity, one new man. And, and let me just give you a little 
give, give you a little of the, the scholarship that goes behind this. In the Greek language, like in many languages, there are several different words that get translated for new, two in particular. The word neos, you hear it, neo, right? And kinos. Now, neos speaks about something that's new as it regards time. I got a new car. I got a new invention. We did a new thing at Jiggy, all right? But when you use the word kinos, it is to say it is something new as in a new kind of invention. So you don't just have a new car, but you got a Tesla. I mean, it's a different kind of vehicle, right? It's a different approach. When you get to something of a different kind, and what Paul says is that when Jesus died to tear down the hostility wall, he did it to create a new kind of humanity, and he didn't say new as in today. He was saying a whole new kind. It is a different thing. It is a different kind of humanity, a totally different kind. He, he died to bring together Jew and Gentile is something the world had not ever seen. I can't tell you how many people have come to church here over the years and told me, I've never been in a church that looked like this. Glory to God. Praise God. But this is what Jesus died to do, folks. Jews and Gentiles who hated each other were coming together. This had not been seen. They were doing life together. They were worshiping together. They were eating together. There was no paradigm that existed for that. God was doing a new kind of thing. I'm closing in now on 30 years of pastoral ministry, another year and a half or so. This might shock you, but I am able to look back over those 30 years and say there are some things I wish I had done differently. <laughs> there are some mistakes I've made and some decisions I took, uh, you know, that I would like to get a do-over, some fixes. You know, you have to learn to put those things in the past. But I, I can be honest enough and say, yeah, no, it hadn't been a smooth, easy, correct road. But if there's one thing I would celebrate and thank God for over these 30 years, and it is now one of the defining characteristics of Pathways, and that is by God's grace, He has called us and people have responded to be part of a truly multicultural church. I mean, folks, 2.5% in America. You are, you are, every church in town is not, <laughs> not like this. It's just not. And we praise God for that. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're better than them. It just means we're working on being obedient to this part of what God has, has put before us. And at the same time, I remain so thankful for what God has done. It gives me great grief because I grieve, I grieve for the church's I grieve for the, the purpose of God, and, and I pray that God will help us to help others to change the trajectory of churches that, that are still locked into a monocultural, little subgroup kind of thinking. I think we need more gospel-centered. That's good news-centered. And the good news is that Jesus has torn down the wall of hostility to make us one. Gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic churches. And I invite you to join with me in praying for God to pour out His Spirit, continue to work on this church, and to help us help our brothers and sisters. As the church needs an extreme makeover, folks, it, it, it's got to become a greater witness to what God does in His people. And it is a powerful witness to a lost and dying world 
when you can come to a church and see blacks and whites and Asians and Latinos and Africans and Brazilians and you name it, come together under the lordship of Jesus Christ in a local church. Jesus is the reconciler. He is a unifier. That's what it says. He said, He made the two one. So if you are still living as two and not one, you are wrestling back. You're pushing back on what Jesus is trying to do. May it never be. Jesus came to reconcile. So that's the solution. The solution is the cross of Jesus. I do get asked a lot, how do you, how do you put together a diverse church? Well, it's not just by having diverse preachers, although that, that helps. It's not just diverse music styles. It's not just that. It's not a gimmick. It's not a fad. Diversity, I often say, is hard to gather and even harder to maintain and deepen. You just have to decide that it's worth the price that it costs. You know where I get that from? Jesus. He paid the price to help make that happen. If we want it to be easy, folks, I'm sorry, that option is not available. But it is worth it. And, and here's what we do. You might, what's my deep, dark secret about how we pull this off? Here it is. The simplest answer for diversity is the simple biblical goal. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do Jew and Gentile, black, white, Hispanic, Portuguese-speaking, Spanish-speaking, whatever-speaking, English-speaking, how do people come together? The Bible says it right here. Paul says it's through the death of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 that we've read today talks a lot about this horizontal reconciliation. But if you remember last week's passage, you go back and look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. It's how we are made alive in Christ. You can't do 11 through 22 until you've done 1 through 10. When you've been saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God so that no one would boast. When you got that done, then you can do that vertical thing, right? Now you can do the horizontal thing with brothers and sisters. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can really bring people together. And so we preach Jesus. Across ethnic lines, he brings people together. And John wrote in one of his little letters, 1 John, he, he put it this way, how can we claim to know the love of God who we do not see if we don't love our brother who we can see? I wonder why he wrote that. Maybe because he'd had a glimpse of heaven, and he knew what it's going to be like, and he could still look and understood the struggle that was taking place still in the first century church and in the 21st century church. Folks, when the gospel gets a hold of our hearts, it creates a longing to love and embrace people who live across the street or across town or across state. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about bringing people together across the ocean, whatever. Have you received the gospel, the good news? Because if you have, my question for you and me is this, are we enjoying the fruit of reconciliation, being together? I'm going to just close with a couple of quick suggestions. I've mentioned several things today already about sharing a cup of coffee or going to a meal. But if you're saying, I don't really have a lot of multi-ethnic friendships, where do I start? Let me just say this. They aren't coming your way by accident. 
if you're waiting for it to drop out of the sky on you, that's not going to happen. So here's a thought. How about joining a diverse small group? You know, join a Sunday school class where the teacher doesn't look like you. There's, there's a thought. Maybe, I, this is really a thought in today's world, how about reading a book on racial reconciliation in the church or in the world? Maybe you buy two copies and get somebody from a different background to read it at the same time, and you get together over that coffee and you talk about the book a little bit. That's a thought. Maybe you could use, Paula, remind me, what's the name of the, of the video service? Right Now Media that we signed up for everybody, right? You have access to that. If you don't remember how, email Paula. She'll be glad to tell you. Pick one of the video series there that teaches about racial reconciliation. Listen to a great black preacher or a great Hispanic preacher. Get somebody who's got a different background from you and learn from them from their perspective. And you can start. Okay, everybody, just turn your head 90 degrees. Look down the pew. And now bring it 180, look down the pew the other way. Just spot anybody that looks a little different from you. Because if you haven't, your next stop is the eye doctor. Okay? Paul is saying this to us. Jesus died to dismantle, to tear down the wall of hostility, to create one new community. I hope you will join arms, hearts, souls, prayers with me in the Pathways Fellowship on the pathway to reconciliation with God and one another. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Amen.